0: And uh, we are ready to go. Welcome to the show. John Schools here, as always, and our good pal Chris Justice, courtesy of Sam Firu, to mark an LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country is handling all of the calls and questions on the show today. So you can email anytime, help at employmentlawyer.ca to reach out. And there's always uh, the website that was constructed and built just for you to learn more. It's called pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. Rolled into that is the severance pay calculator. It used to be a standalone uh, website. Now it's rolled into pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. And that will give you a fairly accurate idea dollar-wise and uh, month-wise and weeks-wise as to how much severance you're actually owed if it came down to the point. Where you were let go and uh, dismissed from your job, so again you can use that any time. Takes about thirty seconds to go through the program, and you'll get a number out the back end that's going to really surprise you, guaranteed. Again, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. Lots to cover off today, Chris. We're going to get into uh, hopefully a couple topics over the hour. Everything you need to know about medical leaves, and then if we got time, social media and the workplace. How about that? But first, you got a couple things to talk about with the uh, the week that was, brother. What's going on?
1: Yeah, so today I was going to talk about a couple cases that recently came my way. Uh, mm-hmm. The first has to do with uh, an issue regarding the characterization of somebody uh, in the workplace. So I know a lot of listeners have, have heard of this before, but the whole deal between what's an employee versus what's an independent contractor, mm-hmm. and uh, you know there being a lot of situations where somebody may be called one thing, but when you do a little bit more digging, you find out actually the the relationship resembles something quite different and that labels aren't really everything in this uh, particular kind of a situation. So I had a guy call in the other day, um, again, with a very classic mischaracterization type case. Uh, He had been with his employer for about a decade. Uh, Very early on, he signed a contract that was titled Independent Contractor Agreement. And the agreement actually, if you, you go a little bit further into it, said, you know, he is an independent contractor, and he's not an employee. And so this was one of the reasons why he had called me initially, because he thought, you know, there was this contract, it said that he was a certain something. And uh, he figured he didn't really have the same rights, therefore, as an employee would. But when I spoke to him, and I kind of examined the situation a bit deeper, I realized that day to day, his relationship with his employer was very much like your typical employee employer type setup, you know, the Employer essentially had a lot of control over him in terms of what he did. Uh, his employer would give him direction as far as what to do day to day. His employer would provide him with an office with some tools. He would have his performance reviewed on a fairly regular basis and given some type of a grade. Um, and then when I asked uh, the, the individual, you know, how he represented himself to the public, to the company's customers. Uh, he would always connect himself to that business. You know, he had a uniform of some sort with the logo and his name below it. He had his own business card with the company's logo on it. So there was just a ton of um, sort of factors involved that seemed to suggest, well, how independent is this guy really? You know, is he is he a true independent contractor uh, in the sense of somebody who has more control over what they do and when they do it? Uh, or, or is he somebody that... Um, You know there's a lot of control being exercised over him by his employer uh and and as i say it just kind of led me to think more and more that this guy's actually not an independent contractor despite what the contract may have said um and actually another key thing he said to me was that he had worked exclusively for Uh. the company so so again not very much uh, a situation where you're a, a gun to hire so to speak and you might be working for 10 different companies or a few different companies over uh, a, a number of years or months, but it was just this one company. Um, but he was kind of thrown off initially by the fact that he had signed this contract that called him something else. And there was also one other factor that we spoke about that wasn't usual in an employee employer setup. And that was that he was um, invoicing the company himself. Uh, he was taking care of his own taxes himself. Uh, so so there were a couple factors in this guy's case that I would say aren't really usual of your employer employee type situation. But the overwhelming majority of the factors uh, definitely pointed towards him being, you know, someone that would be, I think, in the law's eyes, more viewed as an employee. And this was this was ultimately very important because this man lost his job and his employer was essentially saying that, well, look, you you signed this agreement. You know, you're not an employee. You don't have the rights. You don't have the options that an employee has. um, So we're not going to give you anything. And again, he had been there for about a decade. So. Uh, Had he uh, been deemed to be an employee or if he is deemed to be an employee, uh, he he could be looking at over a year of severance. So I was very glad that he kind of reached out to me. And I know this is a situation that will often come up. And I know that nowadays, uh, maybe compared to how things were in the past, we've got all these different types of relationships. You know, we've got contractor relationships. We've got fixed term contracts. We've got this sort of gig economy and, and a lot of labels being thrown around that may not have been uh, customarily the case before, but we really need to examine the relationship itself and not focus too much on labels in these cases. And people just, of course, need to realize that you know, despite what their employer may be telling them, as far as you know, this is what you are, and this is what we're going to give you or not give you. That for the most part, people are going to have options. And in pretty much uh, almost every case I look at like this, uh, there's usually a very good argument to be made that this person is not an independent contractor in the truest sense. And as I say, actually has entitlements upon termination.
0: Well, I mean, we've said in the show before, Chris, that just because, you know, you remit your own taxes and do that, it, you know, that, that's right. not enough to make it ironclad. Plus, I mean, if it was that easy, no company in the planet would ever hire anybody and get themselves out of the fact that they'd have to pay any sort of benefits, overtime, yada, yada, uh, severance to be the right. big one. You know, why would you hire anybody if it was just that simple? Plus, it kind of sounds like whatever this company, whoever this company was kind of, you know, got some sort of Google Doc, an independent contract right. agreement. It doesn't even sound like it was drafted properly, so mind the Might not hold water anyway, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And that's just a general point about contracts. I mean, a lot of time I definitely see sort of cut and paste jobs, Um, you know, employers, especially maybe smaller, less sophisticated employers, not really realizing the nuances of of how things need to be worded. But again, not just worded, you know, actually followed through with. And and you can't just have a piece of paper that somebody signs 10 years ago and then have that completely, you know, wipe out everything that's happened after that point. Um, and again, just because there might be factors that someone objectively may look at and think, well, this isn't really an employee type situation. People just need to realize there's, it's kind of a, there's no exact science, so to speak. You kind of throw yep. everything in the blender and, and, you know, kind of what comes out is what comes out. I mean, I've had situations as well, where individuals have their own businesses, you know, one, two, three, four Ontario incorporated or whatever it is, or Jim mm. incorporated. Sure. And, and again, that's not typically an employee employer type situation, but that alone is not going to be enough to say, well, this guy's there for an independent contractor, or these two or three factors alone are not going to be enough to establish that. So you can have a little bit of, you know, stuff in column A and a little bit of stuff in column B and and still very much have all those rights and entitlements.
0: What's the other thing I wanted to uh, to cover off, brother?
1: Yeah, so this is another situation, uh, another person that recently contacted me um, that has now sort of become my client. Uh, And this particular situation involves... um, sort of case where he had a stable job, you know, he was working for a company for actually pretty close to a decade as well. And he, he was enjoying himself. But then all of a sudden, he gets this message on LinkedIn, uh, from a recruiter, um, who kind of reaches out to him and says, Hey, look, I know, you, you know you're working at this place, but I've got this other opportunity for you, you know, this company has asked me to reach out to you. And you know this recruiter, and then afterwards, representatives of the company start to sort of incentivize this guy to leave his current job and and join the new the new company. You know, there's promises of more money. There's promises of you know long standing tenure. Um, you know, he wasn't really sold on the idea first of leaving his his, his current job and, and jumping ship. Um, but over time, these incentives sort of piled up, and he eventually ended up tendering his resignation at his, at his place of work that he was at and and joining up with this new company. Mm. But then the problem was that when he joined, he quickly realized that the promises that were given were not being fulfilled. And that actually the position that was sold to him uh, was, was pretty much changed very early on into his tenure with the new company. So, you know, definitely not something he signed up for, And, you know, he had a talk with his employer and sort of aired out his concerns, his grievances. And shortly after that, the employer let him go because there was, I guess, a breakdown in the communications. So he came to me uh, because he had been let go only after a few months with the new company and sort of said, you know, I've been let go. This employer's saying, you know, they're not they don't have to really pay me anything because I haven't been there for very long. Uh, and he kind of told me about all the um, the history and in, in the buildup to him leaving his, his previous job and joining this one. And, and I sort of explained to him that, you know, there's there's been a clear example here of inducement that, that you know, he's been induced to leave secure employment of longstanding tenure itself, joins up another co- with another company and then is essentially constructively dismissed because they changed the terms of his employment quite significantly. They don't follow through with any of the promises. And so, again, his worry was, well, I'm terminated now. So, so what can I do? What are my, what are my options here? And I, and I told him and and everyone else should know this, the listeners that is, um, which is that in in cases where you've been induced to leave a secure job and join another one, and then you're subsequently let go quite early on. And you're thinking, well, I kind of gave away all my years of service with the previous company. And now I'm only being given severance as though I've been somewhere for three months or six months or whatever it is. Um, actually the the service with the previous company in these cases of inducement will be factored in. So the, the new company that hired you may think, oh, we can get rid of this guy for giving him a week of severance. But if he's been there for 10 years or, or been at the previous place for 10 years, that new company may actually have to pay him severance as though he's been there for almost 10 years or thereabouts. Um, so you can kind of Get the, the previous service that you had to, right. to lump in with, with the, with the present and not sort of get screwed over in a situation like that. So it, it, there was a lot of issues going on with this case, with the inducement, with the constructive dismissal, that kind of pulling out the rug from underneath. Um, but uh, yeah, I basically told this guy that, that his, his entitlements are potentially significant and actually, you know, very much maybe similar to the, to the previous situation I was talking about with the independent contractor uh, case. Um, so, yeah, that, that uh, is definitely a, a valuable case in, in my eyes and something he was absolutely good to pursue. And so we're going to do everything we can to, of course, get him as much as possible. But, yeah, issues of inducement and uh, even short term service employees being let go thinking they're not owed much. Um, it's, it's really a myth. You know, you can be looking at quite a significant amount of severance in, in those cases, whether you've been induced or even just if you've been with a company for a relatively brief period of time.
0: And, uh, the guy's in good hands, man. Chris, you're all over it like, uh, Kirstie Alley on a peach cobbler. So that's good for him. We're gonna, uh, we're gonna leave it there for now. We're gonna get into our topic. Everything you need to know about medical leaves. That's the first one for the day. We'll continue with the employment law show. Stand by. And we are back at Good to have you along on the show. You got time to, uh, to call in, talk to Chris Justice. He is here, Sanfiru Firu, to market LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country. Chris, always helping people get the information they need and pursuing their rights when it comes to being an employee or an employer. It's, uh, it could be, it could be cloudy, right? People don't know. There's a lot of ignorance out there. Not on purpose. It's just a, a topic most people don't often uh, have to deal with. But when they do, man, you need some, uh, you need some help in your corner for sure. First call for the day. Hey, man, how are you? Good to have you on. Hello, how are you doing? Good. What's uh, what's your question? So I had a question um, about my uh, my terminated employment. Uh, I was working for a, um, a big uh, company down here in Toronto, and um, they let us go um, because of the vaccine mandate. Now, we're a unionized uh, company, and um, I was just wondering, like, uh, how legal is it for them to um, fire people under the the vaccine mandates when um, we sign a collective bargaining agreement with the company?
1: Thank you for your question. So uh, just off the bat, I'm just going to say that we don't typically um, practice unionized work. Um, However, we we do have a lot of non-unionized cases uh, involving uh, similar situations. And, and I think uh, at the end of the day, if you have lost your job or you have in some way been impacted as a result of not following a company's vaccine policy, uh, and you believe that that uh, decision on behalf of the company was unfair or unreasonable or unjust in some way, uh, the first thing I would do is get in touch with my local union rep and let them know what my concerns are, what my grievance is. Um, because I think what it will come down to is an assessment of the reasonableness of that policy. Uh, I'm aware of there being some union decisions where employees have brought grievances or their, or their union on behalf of them have brought grievances. And the question has become, you know, is this policy reasonable or not? I think that if the arbitrator were to decide that the policy was reasonable, then it may be more difficult for you as a unionized employee to get some recourse. But if, on the other hand, the, the decision is that the policy is not reasonable, and this could be due to a number of factors. It could be based on the, the nature of your work, it could be based on the actual specific nature of your job and what you had to do day to day. Could be based on, of course, whether there's any uh, government mandates or laws in place that speak to uh, the implementation of a policy. But but, you know, these could all be issues that I think should uh, or rather should be brought up with your union rep. And then if there's a grievance that that's to be uh, pursued, then your your union hopefully will will advance that grievance on your behalf and uh, and go from there. Uh, there. There's also another thing I usually tell unionized people is to look at the collective bargaining agreement and and look at what it says, look at, you know, maybe what the. Um, the options that the company has or what rights you have in these kinds of situations, if it's detailed in in the actual bargaining agreement itself. Um, But that's pretty much as much as I can say only again, because I don't, I don't specialize, we don't specialize in unionized work. So get in touch with your local union rep, make sure that your concerns are known and get their, their opinion on it and and definitely reference or or look to that collective bargaining agreement for maybe some further guidance in terms of the, the actual process of, of going through all that okay but
0: um isn't it the duty of the employer to uh, provide accommodation if they are um, going to put in a policy a mandated policy
1: yeah so when you say a duty to accommodate you are correct that there is a general duty on employers to accommodate employees um, but usually only insofar as there are human rights grounds or human rights violations potentially being infringed so uh for example in the vaccine context if you are somebody who has perhaps taken the first dose and you had a really bad reaction to it, and you've got the support from your doctor to essentially say, you know, I, I, don't, I don't suggest or recommend this person get any more vaccinations whatsoever, and you can submit that to your employer, I think that can definitely help. Absolutely. Uh, there are other situations where people have um, provided uh, or requested exemptions, I should say, on the basis of religion. So they've obtained, let's say, a note from the religious leader, uh, whoever that may be, whatever religion you may follow, uh, and they've provided those notes to the company, again, as a means to kind of seek out some exemption. So I think when it comes to actual human rights grounds, uh, if you've got something related in that sense, um, definitely uh, bring that up as well with your union rep. Um, If you don't have that, but maybe you can do your job entirely from home, maybe you're in a situation where you don't even need to be around anybody and you can do a hundred percent of your job in your own home somewhere. That could be a practical uh, factor that you might want to raise as well. Uh, that, that could also point towards the reasonableness of, of a company saying, you know, you've either got to get vaccinated or otherwise you're, you're out. So I think maybe those are all issues that, that you can bring up with the union rep. Um, but, but I will say that generally speaking, employers don't have a duty to accommodate literally every situation um, but having said all of that, um, I, I definitely recommend you talk to your union rep, because in these situations, they, the company may actually not have grounds to let you go or have grounds to suspend you until you get vaccinated. And that could amount to a constructive dismissal or, or a termination of some sort and actually uh, afford you the ability to go after uh, fairly significant severance. Okay
0: thank you man appreciate the call uh moving forward help at employmentlawyer.ca lines are open still got lots of time for you so uh so bring it on in the meantime everything you need to know about medical leaves again another area of study here on the show that's uh, that's pretty cloudy for most people so we're trying to provide uh, a little bit of clarity over the next little while chris first point is this how mm-hmm. long can somebody be away from work for medical reasons because again there's a lot of misunderstanding between you know medical reasons and sick days right for instance
1: right right so just before i get into that just sort of addressing the whole issue of medical leaves i know it it can definitely be an uncomfortable situation for a lot of people in terms of you know if if they're contemplating going on a medical leave what's going to happen later on or if they're already on a medical leave you know they might be worried about job security or you know when will i come back or if i come back you know are things going to be the same Uh, what if i come back and i uh you know, sort of make one step forward, but then take two steps back in my recovery. And there's some kind of a relapse of some sort. So I think it's important, as you say, to kind of address these these issues, these situations, and give people an idea of, you know, what protections are out there and what options they have. And as far as the question, you know, how long can somebody be away from work for medical reasons? You know, a lot of people might think, oh, if I'm away for a day or weeks or months, like, you know, the the company's just going to eventually let me go. Um, there's no precise limit. You can actually be off of work for several years, many, many, many years, more than maybe the employer might think is reasonable um, and still be able to keep your job. You know, uh, it's always a good idea. Of course, we're talking about medical leaves to have a doctor's note or some sort of documentation, of course, backing you up and saying, you know, this person's unable to go to work, uh, something to corroborate your your absence um, but, but yeah, it could be, you could be off days, weeks, months, years, um, but you're not going to be considered to have been let go. You know, if you, if you've got the support from your doctor and you can essentially be off work for almost as long as you want, as long as you have this continued support. And if if you're somebody who is being maybe approached by your employer and they're saying, oh, know, enough times past, like we want you back or else. Well, again, they may think that you have to go back within a certain timeframe, but that's just not the case. And, um, obviously if they take action there, there might be, uh, some issues for the employer.
0: Again, 416-870-6400 is how you do that. Um, as far as being off, does, does your employer, do they have <clears throat> the right to ask, uh, like medical information and a diagnosis versus prognosis? What about that?
1: Yeah. So this is something, uh, that I deal with a lot in these types of cases, you know, employers trying to extract essentially as much information as possible. You know, and whether whether they know they don't have the right to do that or they're ignorant to that right. uh, The the fact of the matter is that employers, while they do have the ability to ask certain questions and get certain information out, uh, it's it's not to give them sort of carte blanche to, you know, start digging into somebody's diagnosis, for example. Um, And and a lot of people I talk to who get approached by employers that do this are, of course, very uh, cautious about their privacy uh, you know, they've got concerns in that sense. And they, they ask me, you know, what exactly am I obligated to tell them and, and what don't I have to tell them? And so, again, when it comes to the diagnosis, that's not something uh, that, that you need or should, uh, frankly, disclose to your employer. Um, but, again, there are some questions employers can ask because ultimately what the employer uh, wants to do or should want to do is, you know, number one, get an idea of maybe how long you're going to be away for. and sometimes that's not always clear and that's um i'm referring to the prognosis there so that would be uh maybe the the doctor says yeah they're they're off work they're unable to work but they can come back within a few months and then the employer can at least kind of arrange things on their end and have something hopefully set up for for when that return happens other times the the prognosis is guarded it's going to say we don't know when they can come back i need to reassess this person and i'll be in touch kind of thing and and that's fine as well as i say it, it may take years potentially to come back but um prognosis would be one thing that employers want to know to the extent possible and then employers will also want to know what limitations or what restrictions you have uh, when you do come back so again this is all just practically speaking if you're going to come back and you have these limitations we just need to know so that we can sort of accommodate you you know going back to their their duty to accommodate from the last caller uh accommodate you as best possible but yeah, if, if an employer asks you, like, what kind of treatment are you getting? What kind of medication? What kind of pills are you taking? You know, that stuff is very much uh, more private and personal. And it's simply information that's not going to change the fact that you either can or cannot work. Um, it doesn't really relate to an, uh, sort of the accommodation efforts. Um, so if you're in a situation and you feel like you're someone who's being, you know, gouged, so to speak, for all this information from your employer and you're worried, you know, I don't want to give away too much information. Um, just know that, that again, it's, it's the prognosis and, and those restrictions and limitations generally, um, but anything else is, is probably taking it a step too far.
0: Lots more of these points on the way. Keep the learning coming. In the meantime, help at employmentlawyer.ca. We'll continue. This is the Employment Law Show. Back at it here, the Employment Law Show. Good to have you along for the hour. Anytime after the show or during for that matter, you want to reach out to Chris Justice and get a hold of his folks and his team at the firm. You can do so, one 821 5900 The number, that would be help at employmentlawyer.ca is well we were talking about and right in the middle of the uh, topic for this hour everything you need to know about medical leaves um another another question when somebody's off okay, there's no limit they could need some uh, some accommodation when they come back and it's all up to your doctor I mean your medical team is is the gatekeeper of your health so we got that covered but what happens to an employee's job while they're on medical leave do they have to regular update their employer on the condition every couple of days, weeks months to say, I'm still here and you know what do they do right?
1: Right, right. And uh, actually, this, this can apply to pretty much any leave. A lot of people ask me, and you know, I'm on a medical mm. leave, I'm on a maternity leave, I'm on some sort of sort of leave. And they ask me, does this uh, count towards my uh, seniority? Is this, is this something that gets factored in or is it just kind of a, an offside kind of thing? Um, the first thing is that you're, you're still employed while you're on a leave. So it's not like there's been a termination or you've quit or anything like that. You're still technically an employee. Um, even if you're on an employee, if even if you're an employee who's been on a very long leave, it could be years, as I said before, um, during this time, you know, you're still considered technically an employee of that company. And the the time that passes, whether it's days, weeks, months, years, that as I said is going to count towards your seniority. So you could technically be somebody who uh may have joined up with the company and, and worked there for you know four, five, six months. And then you had to go off unfortunately on some form of medical leave for a few years well by the time you come back if you come back you're going to be someone now with not just four five six months you're going to have about three and a half years of service at that at that point so it's almost as though the law just sort of treats it as, as if you've been there the whole time there's no real discounts or anything like you would just essentially get the same entitlements as somebody with several years of employment um so yeah you're still an employee while you're on the leave Uh, In terms of updating your employer uh, regarding your condition, uh, again, a lot of people are very cautious of doing this because they want to protect their information. They want to protect their privacy. A lot of times they don't think that um, their employer has any right to any information, to to be frank, uh, until they advise them, I'm ready to come back. And, you know, I definitely don't recommend that. I think it's always a good idea to keep your employer updated on the situation, to stay in touch because, Um, You just don't want to be in a situation where you're sort of radio silent or there's this radio silence for months or years. Your employer then assumes, oh, I figured you might have left or quit, even if that's not a reasonable assumption to have. And then, you know, your employment gets terminated or ends in some capacity. So, again, not to say you need to be divulging a lot of information, diagnosis, all this kind of stuff, but it's still good to keep them in, in the loop give them an idea, maybe if there's any updates, like like maybe you've told them in uh, January, you know, th- this is the situation and maybe nothing's changed. So there's not as much of a need to update, but maybe there's a change at some point. So you give them that little update. If there's any change in terms of your prognosis or when you're going to come back, uh, you can give them an update there. Um, so, so, yeah, it's good to kind of keep in touch. You don't want for- them forgetting about you or vice versa. Uh, so whether it's kind of like an email or a letter, um, I would definitely recommend that at the very least. And then, as I said before, if you've got any accompanying medical documentation or a doctor's note of some sort, uh, to kind of attach that to a letter and, and kind of keep that for your records.
0: Going through the topic of medical leaves today. So what does someone do if they're not approved for LTD, like disability coverage, or the claim is cut off, which it probably eventually will be? What do they do in that case, pal? <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. So, of course, a lot of companies, a lot of employers have short term, long term disability plans mm-hmm. uh, that are aimed at uh, providing you with some compensation while you can't work. And uh, you kind of mentioned it or alluded to it. Uh, there's, there's also, unfortunately, a lot of situations where um, people will find themselves in a case where their insurance company, you know, whether it's the, the short term disability insurer, or long term, or, or they might be the same the insurance company doesn't want to approve uh, their, their benefits. They they don't find that they qualify maybe for the definition of disability mm-hmm. uh, and they just simply don't approve them or they do approve them, but then they cut them off prematurely. They say something along the lines of, you know, we think you're ready, you're fit to go back to work. And again, we no longer think you meet this definition. And so we're going to cut you off your benefits. And a lot of times this is done to frustrate the individual um, you know, maybe hoping if we cut them off, you know, he or she's not gonna pursue something. Um, but that's potentially an issue in and of itself, and illegal. Um, so so myself, I, I practice mainly in the employment and labor sector, but our firm does handle uh disability claims just like this very situation. So if you're somebody who hasn't been approved for disability, but you think you qualify for it or you feel as though you've been prematurely cut off, definitely want to give us a call you know we've got lawyers dealing with these claims day in day out um and and just to keep in mind again the importance of the support from your doctor so again if you're cut off and you believe you shouldn't be cut off and and especially you have the the backing of your doctor you know those notes those that medical documentation is going to come in real handy uh in terms of uh you know getting those benefits maybe reactivated um Uh, Because, yeah, as long as you've got this note uh, from a doctor supporting the fact that you can remain off work, um, as I say, this will be a huge help to either get those benefits to begin with or, as I say, kind of reactivate or, or, so to speak, um, get them back on.
0: And you know, again, a reminder as as Chris said, uh, you know, Sam Fury to Mark and do both have uh, areas of law. They do the employment law and the disability law. Why? Because there's so much crossover between the two. <clears throat> I know that you guys are always crossing the hallway to each other, yeah. and discussing discussing cases and matters. So it's nice. It's a one stop shop. So again, if you're in that situation anytime, and there's a, an employee th- portion and there's an insurance uh, company portion, you can always reach out. And uh, be rest assured you can get some answers because they're well-schooled And both. They have lawyers on both sides of the, uh, of the aisle. We're talking about returning to work now. So when they're ready to do so, uh, what do they got to do? How do they dot I's and cross T's?
1: Yeah, so obviously they've got to you know, reach out to their employer, advise their employer that they're ready to return to work. Um, again, if they've got like restrictions or limitations or something along those lines to let that employer know, um, sometimes it could be a restriction or limitation as far as, you know, I can't lift over 30 pounds. Other times it might be, you know, I can't be seated. I can't be seated for, for, you know, more than three hours and I got to take a walk or, or whatever it is. So there, there could be a variety of different restrictions in place, but letting them know that. And, and again, going back to that doctor's note, you know, you get a note, note sets out what if any limitations there are. The note sets out when your return to work date is or when you get, uh, I guess, 100 percent clearance uh, from your doctor. And then you provide that note to your employer, um, ideally, you know, in, in the form of like a, an email or something. So, that, again, you have a record of it. Um, should anything happen in the future? And then the ball's at that point going to be in the employer's uh, court. You know, they're going to decide, you know, can we accommodate this person? Can we not accommodate this person? Is there some kind of middle ground or compromise that, we, that can be reached? Um, And and depending on what the employer's response is, I mean, sometimes employers, they just don't want to accommodate because it's a burden uh, or an inconvenience, like maybe minor one. And other times there may be actual legitimate reason where um, accommodation can't be made. But depending on how that response happens, it could mean a lot of trouble for the employer. Um, But, yeah, as far as the employee is concerned, you just want to give that note, the backing from your doctor with the, the few little details that are necessary and then um, hope that your employer is going to make all reasonable efforts to get you back into that workplace.
0: Take a short break. We'll finish off that topic, move into a couple emails and some other business. An email is help at employmentlawyer.c. We continue. This is the Employment Law Show. And welcome back to a 949 here. And it's uh, Employment Law Show. Good to have you. Uh, good to have you along. want to get into one more talking point here, Chris. And we're talking about everything you need to know about, uh, about medical leaves. What happens... Okay. You're ready to come back. And the employer goes, uh, eh, you know what? We're good. Don't want you back. They don't allow you to return. What do you do in that case?
1: Yeah. So, so just before the break, uh, I was talking about the ball being in the employer's court after yep. the employee signifies they're ready to go back. And, you know, there being this general duty to accommodate. Um, and again, there, there's some employers that will think, oh, well, We've got to shift a little thing here, shift a little thing there to have this person back. And it's not really the end of the world, but we just rather not do that. And, you know, let's, let's sort of oppose the the return or maybe let's tell this person, you can't come back to this location, but we've got one that's, you know, hundred kilometers in the opposite direction. That's got some openings. Maybe you can come back there. Um, and I've actually had cases sort of similar to that where, um, you know they, they don't want to refuse the recall or the return to work because they themselves know that that's going to put them in the hot water but then they think that by offering them uh, it's just some form of employment, even if it's drastically different employment, whether it's the location or the pay or the job that, that that somehow means that they've you know bent over backwards and doing everything they can to get this person back and they're showing good faith. but uh, either way if they if they won't allow an employee to return, or, or they will, but under drastically different circumstances than was the case before the leave even started, then there's going to be a very good chance that the employer is going to be seen as not having um, fulfilled its duty to accommodate because it's just not enough to say I'm inconvenienced. There really has to be what's called undue hardship, which can be very difficult for companies to uh, prove, especially uh, the, the bigger the company that it is. Um, so if if you aren't allowed to return, as I say, there's a good chance you're going to be owed severance. Um, there's going to be a wrongful dismissal in all likelihood uh, present there, and there may actually also be some additional issues in terms of human rights. You know, had it not been for the fact that I took the medical leave to begin with, you know, would I be in this situation? You know, is 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 there even one percent of the reason why I'm not being allowed to return? Is this due to my disability, or is it? really going to be only due to other factors, which is pretty rare. So employers can definitely find themselves in hot water, both from uh, a severance perspective and having to pay out these employees and and also from that human rights perspective. Uh, The the employer is going to essentially have to show that there was really nothing at all legitimately that could be done. Um, And even if that's the case, you know, the employee is still potentially looking at full severance even in those situations. So uh, I think there's a lot of different options that an employee could have if their employer refuses them to return. And I think it's definitely beneficial uh, before maybe engaging in a lot of the back and forth with your employer on, on issues like these to, to give us a call and let us kind of guide you through those steps and make sure all the T's are crossed and I's dotted.
0: I want to grab an email from Victor. He writes in says I lost my job and my employer gave me a check for severance. Uh can I cash it right away even though I want more severance or think I should get more severance? What do you do with the check?
1: Yeah, so I get uh whether it's a check or maybe some amount is deposited into their account and they didn't yeah. they didn't sign anything or anything. Yep. Uh they come to me, they're kind of worried saying, you know, look, does this like does me accepting this check or saying I receive the check or, or cashing the money or spending the money. Is that going to somehow imply that I've, I've accepted that as full and final settlement? And, you know, the answer is, is pretty much no. Um, generally the way that severance works, you know, you lose your job, your company's going to say, you know, on the one hand, here's the minimum we have to pay you under legislation. So here's a check for that, or here's a deposit for that. And then, and then on top of that, you know, if you sign this, this release, usually, uh, we'll give you a little bit extra, you know this this because we're generous or however they want to phrase it, um, and so it's it's typical that the first payment that that somebody's owed at bare minimum under law they're they're just owed they don't have to sign anything that's what they're owed it can often include some vacation pay sometimes, um, and, and that's usually uh, the check that gets given to people or the deposit gets made you know very rarely are employers going to be giving away more money than they have to. Uh, unless they do have somebody's signature. So there's no issue cashing that check um, as long as you don't sign anything. You just want to be careful that, you know, they don't say, oh, and before we give you this check or before we deposit into your checking account, uh, we just want you to sign this piece of paper, this full and final release, you know, whatever legal jargon there might be, because then that's when you as the employee are going to be potentially, uh, you know, there's going to be an issue. And now you've signed something saying, essentially that, you know, I've got this money and I'm not going to come after this company. And then you come to me and, and now it's like, you know, how much can I really do for you at that point? Right. Um, so as long as you don't sign anything, you can absolutely take this money and continue to pursue your full entitlements. Um, you just want to be careful about what you signed.
0: Appreciate that note, Victor. We'll try to get Mitra in here for the last couple of minutes of the show. Uh, Mitra says, uh, was it an unjust dismissal? I worked in a federally regulated industry, and I keep hearing this phrase from my colleagues. How does this uh, differ from a wrongful dismissal, if so?
1: Yeah, so so a lot of people throw around a lot of phrases, wrongful dismissal, constructive dismissal, unjust mm-hmm. dismissal. Uh, when, when somebody uses the phrase unjust dismissal, uh, that normally does apply to the federally regulated industry. Oh. Um, uh, not to say that federally regulated employee can't be wrongfully dismissed, so to speak. But that specific phrase, unjust dismissal, uh, does typically uh, apply to federally regulated industries um, because most people in the province are going to be provincially regulated or work for companies that uh, are regulated by the province. And so that's when you kind of hear terms like wrongful dismissal, that kind of stuff. And if you're let go and you work for a provincially regulated employer, as we've kind of discussed today, you're mm-hmm. going to be owed severance, and the question is, you know, how much severance are you going to be owed generally, unless there's other sort of issues at play. But, but that's the the starting point in any case. And again, that's a wrongful dismissal. But if we look at the federally regulated context and, and the phrase unjust dismissal, uh, you know, this would apply to things like banks, uh, telecommunication companies, um, airlines, railways, that kind of stuff. If you're in kind of one of these sectors and and this term gets thrown around and you're wondering what it's about. Um, this also means, you know, this being unjust dismissal. This also means that, you know, you've been dismissed wrongfully in some way. Gotcha. Uh, that, that you're potentially owed more severance. So so the same kind of thing can apply with the federal as it does provincial that, you know, I, I'm owed more severance and therefore that's an unjust dismissal. Absolutely. But the one uh, unique part about being a federally regulated employee is that, if you pursue a case against your company for unjust dismissal, y- you not only can go after them for more severance, which oftentimes you know that that's the case. People are very very rarely given a fair and reasonable severance package, but under an unjust dismissal kind of um, uh, characterization, you can actually, as a federally regulated employee. Uh, have the right to get reinstated into your job and get your job back. Mm-hmm. Um, now that's not something typically available for those working for companies that are regulated within the province. So um, federally regulated employees have this kind of added bonus of not only being able to pursue severance, but you know potentially getting reinstatement. And if you get, let's say, reinstated uh, six months after you ask for that reinstatement, you can also get all your back pay Um, all the way up, you know, back all the way to the day that they let you go originally. So I think this is a very significant right that that federally regulated employees have. So when that phrase gets tossed around, just know that that's sort of what it's generally referring to. And of course, if you're an employee in that situation and you have a desire to go back, um, because a lot of times you may not, but if you do, just know that you've got this additional remedy um, that that you can apply for. And, And just one last thing I'll say is that there are some exceptions to the application of you know, this remedy as in terms of reinstatement. So if you're a manager, for example, you're not generally going to be uh, applicable with this remedy, but you can still go after severance. But for the most part, everyone else can go after both of these remedies. So definitely something to know going forward.
0: And we're done. 1-855-821-5900 to reach Chris now and help at employmentlawyer.ca. We'll catch you next time. Employment Law Show.